This podcast is brought to you by PencilPay. Take your wholesale credit applications online, collect a billing method, and control when you get paid. Welcome to Product Hub. I'm your host, Tim Dimitriou. Today's guest is Steve Chapman. He's the founder of Shine Drink. They're a natural, nootropic-based energy drink stocked in over 6,500 retailers across the country. Steve had an early running with Facebook, then went and did a professional apprenticeship, and then went into the world of FMCG. So it wasn't your typical evolution into business. And um, one thing you really need to check out is the masterclass in pitching a category buyer, and that comes around about halfway through the podcast. So hope you enjoy it. Guys, we've got um, Steve Chapman. Steve's the founder and CEO of shine drinks now um they're available in i think more than five thousand stores now across uh, across the country so um really taking the world of um you know healthy healthy energy drinks by storm welcome mate thanks mate it's good to be here um i've got the fortunate privilege to once start the business um not just by myself so i'm actually a co-founder uh but yeah it's been a, a fantastic journey and we launched just into woolworths nationally this week um, so it probably takes it closer to maybe six and a half, seven thousand stores now, which is cool. Wow! Congrats, mate. The um, so um, out of those kind of big box retailers, so you'd be you, you're across Woolworths, no doubt, all the IGAs and 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 Metcash stores and all the rest of it, as well as a bunch of other retailers. Are there any other large retailers that you're in? Yeah, yeah. So um, we started, I guess, the business more in that independent route trade, just really any any uh, store I could find on the corner, yeah. be walking around and trying to pitch it. Uh, cold and then we got our break into petrol and convenience um, yeah cool cool back then we had a kind of little 100 mil shot sitting on counters and that just worked perfectly at the front of the store at the checkout aisles and they're you know just really small independent petrol and conveniences to start with and then into multi-site operators uh, and then we, we we did got lucky enough to get a trial into caltex initially which is now known as ampol and uh, they were the first to take us nationally uh, in Ampol with the shots. And then we launched the kind of carbonated stuff in the fridges as well. Uh, and that went well. And then, you know, we went very heavy into petrol and convenience. So we went 7-Elevens, Ampols, Coles Expressors, um, On The Run, EG Groups, BPs, pretty much every every Everywhere. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then maybe about 18 months ago, we started uh, focusing a bit on grocery. So then it's building up that corporate grocery. Uh, Coles was the first to, I think Woolworths the first to trial us, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Coles tried us, but then took us nationally um, first. And does that just flow? Like once you're in one, the conversation's a hell of a lot easier for the next one? Yes and no. I think there's always that push and pull of really, in the game of startup, it's like how quickly can you build credibility and and then how quickly can you leverage the credibility you just got? So, um, you know, momentum is is really what it's all about of how do we just take that one win and build the next win on top of it and hopefully just keep building uh, positive momentum yeah and for sure so yeah it's, it's always a bit of a push and pull on who's who's your best friend at the time or which one wants you more but um, <laughs> yeah thankfully we we just keep adding you know within and then the conversation came from not just how many outlets are we in in terms of stores or which banner group we're in like are we in coals but it's then within coals okay what skews how many how many drinks, how many flavors, how many packs do you have? And then how many categories do you have that in? So mm. for example, now in a, in a Coles of Woolworths, we will play across multiple categories where in that chilled juice, you know, kombucha kind of section, we've got our carbonated 330 mil in that front of store, you know, more like in that cold drink section, you might have your 250 mils um, right next to you kind of maybe Red Bull 250s. 
And then you got your four packs, which is where we just launched um, our new sugar-free four packs in Woolworths. That's in the energy section next to the Red Bull four packs. Um, you might have you charged in, in energy in, in the cold drink section as well. And then, um, you know, we might have some other stuff coming out shortly. So we, we kind of play across maybe two or three different categories. Yeah, it's a, and obviously it seems like you've got a really good relationship with the category managers and that type of thing because you're able to, if you're able to put different products, you know, the right product for the right place in the store, um, it obviously shows the relationship that you've got with them is, is is relatively tight. Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, people do business with people they like and, you know, you, you obviously want to be a, a good person to do business with and, and, and that's really part of our culture. We've always not just like to be, you know, for me when in negotiations it's not, how do I squeeze every last cent out of the deal and how do I make sure the other guy feels like he's lost? It's how do we ultimately build a win-win where they get a great product, they get, you know, probably more margin from us than they do from some of the bigger players. Mm. It's a well-known fact that, you know, that's the role we play for them in a category. But, you know, what they can give us is, you know, a chance to shine. And if we take it, they look they look good as well with launching it back in new product and taking that more future trends, customer trends of like, you know, they obviously want something healthy and natural and we, we play an important role there to making sure customers are engaged and they're offering something new as well. Yeah, cool. Now, I, I want to get into the into the shine journey in a bit, but I want to go back a little bit first because um, I'm really keen to, I had a little, um, I, I, I did a little bit of investigation on you and had a, had a, and, and did a little bit of a dig and your, um, your, your path to, your path to producing and selling a beverage is not the standard path that someone, <laughs> someone takes. Um, I would love to know kind of what got you here. And, you know, the research tells me, obviously, you know, your school and all the rest of it, but let's kind of look past that um, to, to kind of your, you know, your, your, um, your professional experience. And I saw that you started a, you started an app. Is that right? When you were, yeah. when you were, when you're a bit younger, can you, can you, can you tell me about that? Cause it was, uh, it was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That was definitely where I cut my teeth, so to speak on the entrepreneurial journey and I left PwC um, to do it, which was potentially that big corporate safer career path. Uh, thank, which you. My thank, God. thank God. Thank <laughs> God. Yeah. You know, potentially, hopefully, thank God for everyone who now drinks shine and gets off, you know, something sugary for, for the, for us. So we've done the, the world some good, hopefully. Um, but look, the, I was sitting in PwC office and I looked out over the, I don't know, Dine Harbour horizon and just thought maybe there's something bigger and better or more exciting than Westpac's financial accountants uh, <laughs> and, and their, their books. And the, you know, I was reading about guys like Zuckerberg, he built this app for, you know, called Facebook and he sold it for, he didn't sell it. He, he bought Instagram for a billion dollars and this app, a billion people used in the world. And the guy was like 26 at the time. And I was like, that's, that's really impressive. I'd love to do something similar. And so, yeah, I came up with an idea to try and create an app and sell it to Facebook for a billion dollars. <laughs> that was the kind of business plan and I called it FaceBuy. And um, look, it was pretty much like Facebook marketplaces today, um, maybe 10, 12 years ago. So the direction was right that people would buy and sell on, on Facebook and maybe more of the seamless social interaction. Um, eBay meets Facebook, but, you know, I was 20 years old at the time and just made every mistake you could possibly make. <laughs> Publicly, it went okay in terms of downloads and features and, and PR and all that good stuff. But, you know, privately behind the scenes, it was still so much to learn both technically an app and development but also from a, how to run a business and scale it quickly so um you know i woke up to a pretty scary email around being shut down by facebook and and you know end up in in a in a hole of i don't know understand how i lost everything and uh it was a pretty bad time but out of it i realized i loved 
entrepreneurship, like whatever I did, you know, I just loved every day of it. And my worst days there were still better than my best days at PwC, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. The second big thing I learned from it was humility was going to be the antidote to future successes where for me, I developed through high school and through getting bullied and a few other things, um, an ego. So I got some protection from this, you know, harsh world and I developed an ego. And I think I took that with me into my professional world of PwC and then into this app world. And for me, that was one of the biggest insights of learning, which was, you know, one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite philosophers, he talks about the impediment to action advances action. The obstacle becomes the way. And it's Marcus Aurelius, a great stoic philosopher. And, and for me, like my biggest obstacle was his ego because I didn't ask the questions. I thought I knew all the answers. I didn't put in the work. Uh, and that's really one of the main reasons of what I led to my first failure. So I thought humility then was my path forward. And I wanted to then go and learn from people way smarter than me and, you know, ultimately sorted out a lot of mentors um, to learn from. And I had a lot of great coffees with people who really wanted the full immersive experience of mentorship. And that's why I ended up partnering with and learning and seeking out a guy called Dr. Sam Prince, um, an incredible serial entrepreneur and philanthropist, a doctor, and uh, just all around very impressive, uh, impressive guy. And I thought if anyone can teach me humility, it's learning from a guy like that. And I took the unconventional path of becoming a personal assistant, to be honest, and just wanted to sit in the room and learn and listen and watch and shut up. And, you know, I, just was, I was actually going to ask you about that. I, I, I had a look and it's a, it is a really unconventional path to, to, um, to be as self-aware enough to say, well, I'm in my twenties and I don't know shit. So I'm going to go and learn from someone that does. So why did you choose Sam as your, as the person that you really wanted to hit your wagon to? Um, for me, Sam captured a lot of not just business success, but um, let's say personal success or th philosophical success where he has a very interesting approach to life, which isn't just around, you know, money, money and success. It, he, he's, he's, you know, quite philosophical and very intelligent. And, and it wasn't just, I want to learn business from you, but it was really, I want to learn some elements of life from you. Um, and the reason why Sam, he also ticked the box or that balance between, He's old enough to have some experience and have some wins on his belt to, and figure out why that was so and, and teach it. But he was still young enough to know what it was like just getting started. He, you know, remembers the scars of just just breaking out and and we we connected on a friendship level as much as a business level. So, you know, that was a really really the right place, at the right time, and he was the right guy for sure. And um, incredibly blessed and grateful for that. And what we so for I think it was for three years um, from from what I read. What type yep. of what type of businesses were you involved with um, during that period? Because obviously that's led that's led um, to you, to the next phase of your of your life, which is you know starting starting shine. So obviously it was really really important time. What what type of businesses were you working on? Um, so Sam has a wide range of business interests and, and non for profits and things. So you know we were by the end of it, I, I very much started as a personal assistant. And then developed into an executive assistant where it was a bit more project based or, um, you know, working a bit more in an executive function with the leadership team. And then by the end, it was really kind of a pseudo Batman Robin star where whatever Sam was working on, I'd work on across Sambrero and not um, One Disease or the restaurant group in Mexico, Indu, Kid Kyoto. Um, you know, there was a genetics um, and healthcare business that's you know, transformed a few times. There was a not-for-profit in entrepreneurship, which we're very passionate about, of course, the So there's a wide range of businesses that probably some are still in the 
in the garage, so to speak, that yep, yep. come out one day and um, others have, have, you know, continued to flourish into very successful businesses. So, you know, got the range of startup to, to big business, so to speak, and got, yep. you know, behind the scenes access to all those decisions. And, and I imagine that dealing with, um, dealing, dealing in businesses where, um, you know, that he, where he had restaurant chains, um, I'd imagine that you would have seen the, um, potentially what your future buyer might look like was that kind of a was that a um was that a, a thought that the fact that hey these this particular this particular restaurant chain they got to get beverages from somewhere did you have that kind of mindset yeah and, and you know very much early testing days was that in mind where we knew you know the trends and we could see behind the scenes the, the walk away from sugar drinks and so even just water to be honest and, and the rise of water and then the likes of things like kombucha coming along and coconut mm. water has been a more requested menu item. So for sure, that was one of the data points we were looking at very, very early days at Shine to say, hey, maybe there's something here. And, and the second thing from Zambrero was um, Zambrero launched, uh, and it was around the time I was there, which was the, what's known as the IQ range, which was um, Sam and some of his doctor friends, we came across um, some research that said these ingredients have been proven at the highest clinical levels to actually help with some sort of brain function from a either neurodegeneration perspective, from cognitive function to executive function. Um, and we had, and Sam, you know, definitely had the thought of like, hey, does anyone want to pay an extra little a couple bucks to add that to their burrito mm -hmm. or bowl in the Mexican restaurant? And, and with that up as an upsell, like, would you want an, an IQ burrito or bowl with these ingredients in there? And so they, they tested it and launched it and it, it smashed. It was one of the top selling burritos and bowls <laughs> and, you know, increase transactional value and all those things because the audience of that young professional health conscious person really were looking for you know cognitive i guess benefit from not just their food um but and then and then that was another data point to go hey would that work in in beverage as well okay cool and that that kind of leads us to um you know you you probably start producing your product soon or start to think about what the product's going to be soon um and then New Trop New Tropics comes into the comes into the into the thinking at some point. Now, does it come into the thinking at the very start? Is that what you're going to do at the very start when you thought about creating Shine, or did that you know? Did you did you kind of did you toy with other things or? Yeah. So in in the background, when Sam and I were working together, it was just working very very long hours. Like it sounds <laughs> a, and I, I definitely whilst I had work ethic before, I think it was um, it was ingrained in me just the importance of it through my relationship and time with Sam and. You know, we up at 4.24 every morning, meditating, watching the sunrise, working out, then full day of meetings, strategic thinking, hiring all the rest of it. And then, you know, Sam might be doing a talk that night or we might be doing podcasts and stuff during the day. And, you know, I was there every, every step of the way until 8, 9, 10 p.m. And we'll do it again at, 10 the next, at 4 a.m. the next morning. So at a certain point, we just started looking at how do we improve all aspects of physical and mental health. And it was you know, what's diet, what's sleep, how do we optimize, how do we biohack, those type of trends. And through that journey, it was like, you know, from a beverage perspective, it was like, how many coffees can we honestly have a day? And how good is that for you? Mm. Or, you know, what are we doing thinking about even going for an energy drink, you know, or Red Bull or V or whatever it is at, you know, 2, 3, 4 p.m. in the afternoon to keep going. And Sam's a doctor, I'm a, I'm a health conscious guy, you know, always been into health and fitness. It was like, I don't particularly want to put an energy drink with the sugar and artificials and all that into my body and I don't want to have another coffee after five or six so um, we started experimenting with new tropics where we would you know reddit and google and 
you know, experiments all the weird and wonderful things in my top. Good drawer. old, good old Reddit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, things pretty hardcore, which probably closer to the limitless Bradley Cooper movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like Modafinil or you know, Ritalin or Dexamphetamines or whatever it was. Uh, all the way through to very natural, very plant-based, you know, turmeric, ginkgo, ginseng, green tea, B vitamins, and L-theanine. And, you know, I just listed off pretty much the key functional ingredients in Shine. And it was, you know, we'd used to individually, you know, put them into drinks and powders and put them in a Gatorade or put them in water and mix our own. And then it was, hey, does this, why doesn't this exist in an RTD format where it gives you a pick-me-up, but it's kind of from a better source and really the nootropics were going to be the hero. For people that have never touched this stuff, which is pro- probably, yeah, I mean everyone, yeah. I mean everyone's had caffeine. Let's 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 be let's <laughs> kind of park that one. But everything else, people just don't know about it, and people don't have it. You know, you guys have done a really good job marketing, but how many people can you touch really? So the um, can you tell someone the feeling that you know someone that has woken up at four twenty four in the morning and they're gonna and they're gonna have this to to try and to try and I guess brighten up their day and give them the energy and the mindset to be able to get through and still function properly as opposed to just doing crap work at six seven eight o'clock at night, which is what happens a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, what's the feeling that you get from it, and um, you know, and uh, and and what's the what are the cognitive benefits that that you um, kind of felt from it at that early stage yeah and i think for me it was a good way i I like to analogize um think about it is if you you think coffee and everyone's probably had that experience with coffee it can be quite an intense rush maybe um if you think through it like a bit tingly or a bit anxiety provoking or a bit like on edge kind of a bit uh a bit wired maybe is another word to think about it it's the perfect word yeah (laughs) it's the perfect word yeah. Uh, maybe from a tea base, like if, I know if you sit in in a, in a nice room having a cup of green tea or matcha tea, it's like I feel calm, I feel a bit more zen, but I feel focused. I feel like I'm feel like in this peaceful state, but I, I still can execute and I can still think clearly. And that's probably a good way to think about the difference between like you know a traditional energy drink with sugar and caffeine rush to a shine nootropic better energy, so to speak, offer, which is more of a, and it's really the combination of the caffeine with an ingredient known as L-theanine. Yes. L-theanine and caffeine pair really well. It's, it limits the intensity of the, the up, so to speak, on a caffeine perspective. Um, it prolongs how long you stay at an elevated state. And it also flattens out that crash. So you don't end up, and most caffeine studies will show you end up below where you started versus with L-theanine caffeine, you end up at the same level. So does so the alphine um, slows down the release of the caffeine, does it, or is yeah, that it the metabolism of it? So it really kind of it's more of a slow release, um, and it and it doesn't take you to a, such an elevated state. It kind of gives you to the right the right level, so to speak. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Yeah, super interesting. Um, the um, yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. The um, the first batch. Who who made the first batch? What did you make it in? I've I've, I've done um, in some of the other some of the other podcasts. Um, I interviewed someone that you know had a drink and had a had a um, a mixed drink and and did the first batch. Um, did the first batch in something that you know you probably wouldn't do it in. And um, mm-hmm. 
a, a friend of mine has a oh, used to have before he sold it a really well-known skin brand a skincare brand and um you know their family mixed their first batch in in their but in their family bathtub so there's a number of different <laughs> there's a number of different ways you can go about it can you give me the rundown on how you who created the first the first um product what did it taste like and then how did you iterate from there yeah yeah for sure um i was joined in the story um sam and i were joined with a guy called andrew um and he joined in the same way, similar similar journey of how I joined with Sam, where he was a young entrepreneur um, and he was looking for learning it kind of um, hands-on, so to speak. And, you know, was, I was like, yeah, cool. Like, come learn hands-on with this Shine journey and we'll build it together and uh, with Sam's guidance as well. So that's Andrew joins the picture. He's got a health science medical background and, and he pretty much came with us instead of going to med- medical school. Um, <laughs> So he, he understood the science behind it a bit more than I did. I was more of a, a feelings guy. Like, how did I feel after I took it? He could explain, you know, what's going on in my brain more than I could. Um, so he helped. We worked with a professor of psychopharmacology um, out of the, the University of Swinburne who knew the science to a whole nother level of what functional dosages do you need? What are the active ingredients and how do you measure for them and standardize them? Um, so the, the, the final list of the nootropics and, you know, that functional part of it was definitely created by, you know, guys like Andrew and Professor Scully um, and myself and Sam. The, the flavors perspective of it, we, we really wanted to capture, because we're gonna go with a shot, you know, we wanted to be able to drink an ambient, didn't need refrigeration. Um, and it was like, we wanted to create like a psychological impact that because it was like a fiery kind of ginger lemon, it was like, oh that kind of feels healthy, it feels functional, it feels a little bit medicinal. And it like naturally because of that intense flavor, I feel like it's gonna work, you know? So we're trying to add to that placebo effect of it, it feels like it's healthy. Yeah, very, um, yeah, very, very interesting. But but like now that I think about it, very smart move to go with ginger as that, as that, you know, as that thing that really cuts through, but because, you know, you go to a local cafe and you get an apple, carrot and ginger juice or something like that. Yeah. That's what you're, that's what you remember as the, that's what you remember as a thing. Oh, geez, I feel really good now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it was a positive um, connotation we could build on, which ginger was already a, a functional flavor. Um, and then we could add these new tropics onto it. So we weren't starting from scratch trying to educate people, you know, what the hell turmeric or ginkgo biloba was. Yeah. Cool. 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 And, and then, then we that- realized we wanted um, to make that more mainstream where some people hate ginger, some people love it. We didn't want to be just a health drink. We wanted to be a bit more of a mainstream. Um, so we obviously got now. I think 16 flavors and they're all very delicious and you know almost like you're drinking a full sugar soft drink yeah um, but they're all natural low sugar but where we started was more than that very because it was a shot it was very much a, a concentrated health you know it was like a delivery mechanism to get all the good stuff in you but we still wanted to taste um, yeah taste healthy yeah cool and then so you mix up the first batch and you, and you, um, do you have a customer um, off the bat? Do you have a customer or do you try and sell it online or? or yeah, who- we started online. We started online for sure. We, um, you know, we're mixing up batches, you know, probably one of the first few was in Sam's kitchen sink or, or saucepan at his place. Yep. Uh, then there was like a small scale test in actually into bottles and things were, was it in a garage in Melbourne or good, all good startup starting a, yeah. a garage at some point. Yep. <laughs> Uh, there's some ex-Coke guys that were advisors to us at the moment and they were doing their own beverage project and he happened to have a, a shot line in his garage and we did our first batch, um, our official first batch <laughs> how, there. How good's that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and and we did it. Um, we made, 
I think it was about 157 packs. We thought one per day and we'd go sell them online. And so we had these seven packs for the few months prior to launch, we were doing some Facebook marketing, some email marketing, building a bit of a newsletter database around productivity and new topics and study hacks and things. Um, so then when we launched one July, 2016, we had some email lists and things like that, which we blasted, we launched just online and we sold out those um, seven packs in the first day. Um, which was a good validation of going, people That's, want this stuff. At, they, that is the identical, so it's the identical strategy that um, a lady that I interviewed on the podcast um, uh, has a, 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 a premix cocktail brand, like high-end premix cocktail, exactly the same strategy. So spent, you know, two, three months, a little bit of Facebook, building up, a, building up an email marketing list. Um, and then you got the product ready months later. Um, blast out and then just watch them come and yeah, yeah. it's a yeah, it's, it's, it's an awesome strategy. Nervous. I think it was yeah. probably where I picked it up. <laughs> yep, 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 cool. And um, and then you go off and so you sell your first hundred and fifty, get a bit of cash in the door. What's next? Um, well, we quickly call them because we sold out and we call our mate in in Melbourne in the garage and say, hey, we need another need another batch. <laughs> Can we get some more. Uh, at this point, his wife is very unhappy with him because like <laughs> so much shine in the garage and there's like there's stuff everywhere and there's turmeric that's stained his carpet. And so his wife's like, you need to get out of here. He's like, yeah, man, like I'm working around the clock to fill these little bottles. Like you need to find a proper manufacturer. So uh, we started looking for, you know, a full scale production facility, which we were interviewing uh, a few and, and, you know, we met some awesome partners who, believed in us enough to be able to actually go put in and rent they didn't no one had shots in australia were, were the first to do shots properly um and so we had to then convince the manufacturer to go build a line for us and and you know accept the job and all the rest of it so maybe that was two three months later we had can, I just, can i just chime in quickly so um you know for for for, for the audience of this podcast it's you know it's it's a bunch of different um, I guess personas, but really the one of them is people who 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 want to start businesses. I'd be really interested to know um, the what's the process of going and finding a manufacturer because a lot of people don't know this stuff, and um, you know I'd love to I'd love for you to explain uh, the types of things that you were looking for, and then lo- looking back on it, was it a good move? Do you um, are you still with them? Have you changed all that type of thing? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um... One of the biggest learnings I got from my first failure and then my experience with Sam was leveraging other people's experience. So, you know, whatever success I've had now is only because I've spoken to smarter people than me and, and borrowed their advice and avoided their failure. So when we started Shine, it was a similar exercise where we literally spoke to and I hunted down anyone in Australia and, and some people globally that had started a beverage brand before, both successfully and unsuccessfully, and then just bought them coffee, picked their brain on a back then I don't think Zoom was really was really yeah. around, but you know, any way to get their insights on it. So often I'll just triangulate smart people's advice to figure out what to do and what not to do from everyone who started, you know, kombucha companies or energy drink companies or um, coconut water companies to people who started vitamin companies overseas and here. And so th- there was a lot of learnings around that was probably so my first bit of advice to people starting is like go talk to as many smart people who've done it before with experience and triangulate their response. Don't yep. just believe everyone, just one person that says something. If, if five smart people with experience say the same thing, it's probably a good idea to listen yep. just because one says it doesn't make it true. Um, so then, yeah, through that process, we'd met a bunch of, you know, people very close to the food and beverage manufacturing space. And we got a bunch of names 
off them about who, who to talk to. You know, there's consultants for this stuff as well that, you know, get paid to go find the right manufacturer for you. But we had almost no money. So we, I think, asked for favors and asked for friends and all that stuff. And um, when we went there, I think most people just Google cold message a, a retail or a manufacturer, sorry, and say, can you make my drink? And, you know, they've got no plan. They've got no product. They've got no idea. They've got no traction. They've got no um, experience. So most of the manufacturers will say it's not worth their time mm. to invest or even take the meeting. Um, speaking to all our manufacturers now, that happens weekly, like maybe multiple times a week, someone reaches out with some new idea and 99% of them fall off. So I think what we did well was we went out to these guys with a, a full presentation, a full business plan, a full who's investing, who's behind us, what are we doing? How, like, who's our market? How are we going to promote it? Who's our customers? What's the growth strategy? What's our three-year plan? And, and you know, to this day, I think our manufacturers actually use us as the case study to go, this is what you need yeah. to pass our test to, for us to work with. And, and they've openly said that to me many times, which is, I think we, we exceeded expectations for what we should have sorted out by that point. And we only had that information because we asked all those smart people around how we should go about it. So... You know, I think what the learnings was, yes, we still work with them um, on the shots. Definitely. Cool. There are good guys and they've been um, big believers our whole, our whole journey. But we've now got um, two other manufacturing partners and we've had a few over time, particularly for the carbonated stuff. There's one more people who can do carbonated in Australia and based on the volumes and the size and the complexity, you know, some partners are better early when it's small runs and it's very nimble, but they're going to be more costly. And then as you grow volumes, um, you know, I think we've been through maybe four partners to find our current partners who will be great to scale with us for the next journey. Um, yep. Who can invest in the right equipment, who can build the line. It's important to have a good balance sheet. So then they're not like trying to get all the money off you from a cash perspective up front. You want mm -hmm. someone who's big enough to be able to support your growth and, you know, ultimately let you and enable your growth instead of hinder it with tight payment terms or, you know, if they're worried about their own cash flow, it's, it's yeah. You both can't be worried about cash flow in a relationship. Someone needs to be okay with it. Hundred percent, hundred percent. The um, so so um, I, I wanted to touch on um, uh, the next step of of kind of getting the product out there, which is designing the bottles. Now, I look looking on your website. Your website is is, is incredible, and the 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 bottle design. I was really taken with the actual bottle design. It's um it stands out. It's not gaudy. It's really, really nice. Like that's a, you know, and it, and it automatically, as soon as I look at it, it, it appeals to not just the regular 16 year old person buying an energy drink. It appears, it, it appeals to someone completely different. What were all of the, what were all of the things that you had to think about when you're going and designing a bottle and a brand and everything for market? Because obviously that's played into it big time for you guys. Yeah. No, I think you think you're, um, you're on the money there with, I think I've read some research where most people for the first five or six times they purchase your product don't actually recognize the trademark or logo. It's, it's really the packaging that they remember and what they go back to when they go back to shelf. And for us, even from the shot, we always wanted to stand out. We didn't want to be in a competitive space. So we, um, yeah, when the, when the crowd zigs, you zag or go against the, when you find yourself on the side of majority, stop and pause. I think it was Mark Twain. Mm -hmm. And we, we took some of those principles into it. You know, I'm, I'm a big Apple guy. And so I loved Apple's design aesthetics of clean and minimalistic and, and kind of intuitive. Um, we actually in, internally called our project names around each of our product ranges, one of the Apple ranges. So mm -hmm. I like to think this was the shot was our kind of Apple II, where it was like 
first in the category. It really invented back then personal computer, but it was still for hobbyists. It was still for people who, you know, were going to plug in their own keyboard and write code, but it really created the personal computer, even the idea of having, you know, this idea of having a, a functional, you know, nootropic drink. Um, yeah. Something but- something completely different that no one that no one 10 years before would have thought would have would have actually happened and been yeah, out correct, there. Right? Yeah, yeah. Where what they did then with with the Apple Store was Macintosh and Macintosh was as beautiful, it was intuitive, it was stunning, it, it kind of stood out. And, you know, it was the first time a, a mom or a person at home would do their tax return on it or, you know, do your shopping list or some simple calculations. And the Macintosh that was for, our, you know, for our um, big carbonated one, that was the internal name. And, you know, infantry management system, it still says Mac in all the codes and stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's with us forever. But, you know, for us, that was how do we take what we've proven out people want into a mainstream appeal. And, you know, we we're playing in that better for you space at the time. And kombucha was, you know, the craze and everyone was jumping on the kombucha wagon, particularly retailers in space. And if you know that category, everyone went for the very standard um, brown, like, uh, amp, brown, uh, brown dark bottle. bottle, beer bottle. Yeah. So, and, and every single brand had that in, at a moment in time. And we we're going to go right next to them. It's like, how do we stand out? So instead of that kind of like, you know, thin neck and, and big base. We're like, how do we do more of a, a base um, from top and bottom, um, more of a cylinder? So there was a, there was a company actually in the US called Buy, and they sold to Dr. Pepper for 1.7 billion and, and Ben's uh, been an incredible mentor and advisor to us um, over the years. But he had a drink called Buy and he's, I really liked the shape of his bottle. It was a, it was a water bottle in the US. And then um, I loved Voss, to be honest. And uh, yeah. everyone, everyone, lo- everyone loves Voss, but yeah. uh but Jesus is expensive. Exactly. So, <laughs> I think their packaging was so good. People will find to pay for it for, for many time, a long period of time. So actually in Photoshop, I took um, Buy's bottle and I took Foss's bottle and then superimposed them. So it was like Foss's body with Buy's kind of neckline and then crafted a few other things. But for me, it was just taking inspiration from what I loved and, and combined it. And then I gave that to our, our bottling packaging people and they created it. Um, it's um, it's really interesting. You you talk about buy, and you said that they sold at Dr Pepper for one point seven billion. I think you yeah. said. Um, the um, uh, have you ever thought that your original idea of of how to of how to get rich and how to <laughs> how to sell a business with with um, with face by selling, you know, create something that that one of the big boys is going to buy? Um, it's the it's the it's it's the exact same model that you that your friend um, at buy did. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, and to be honest, it's it's crazy how much how many successful exits happen in in food and beverage because the big guys need it. It's such a huge commodity product. The category is massive, but they're very bad at creating brands. So then they they wait for for younger players in new categories to take the risk, spend all the money, figure out the learnings. And, and they, they can distribute. Then they can just plug into their system and, and yeah. win the category if they know the brand and, and the product stands up. So, you know, I didn't know that back then. Um, it's still it's still a hard game. Like, I, <laughs> I, it's still a bit easy, uh, not as easy as that because it's it's you know, and but technology has its problems as well. So everything's hard. You've got to pick your heart. Yeah, everything's hard. Like if 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 these if if exiting a business for a hundred million dollars or something like that was easy, then um, a lot more people would do it. It's uh, it's yeah. I mean, it's business it's always what, hard. What blew my mind a few years ago. I saw this stat that Monster Energy was the number one performing stock globally in the last two decades, uh, and this was a stat from a couple of years ago. But it's like 
that beats Amazon, that beats Tesla, that beats <laughs> Apple, that beats Microsoft. It's like all these big tech companies are in all the, you know, the magazines and stuff like that on the front of Fortune. But it's like Monster Energy was like 20,000% returns over 20 years because of going from, you know, a small startup to in the US, I think they're on a volume perspective bigger than Red Bull now and wow. absolutely killing it. And, you know, profits on that stuff is awesome at 60% margins. Um, so it's like, yeah, you can make a crazy amount of money. That's, you know, that's Apple scheme of things. That's, 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 that's incredible. That's actually incredible. It's just blown my mind. The, um, yeah, it's wow. That's, uh, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Monster. I mean, yeah, I, I, I mean, I mean, I think I've had one sip of monster in my life and it's, um, it didn't, it didn't go down that well with me, but anyway. <laughs> no, it, it's, a, it's a product that's awesome for a customer that, you know, there's a lot of those customers that love it. So yeah, I think what they did was introduce um, flavors to the energy category where Red Bull was very... Red Bull. <laughs> you know, I would say to a degree arrogant around one flavor. It, I don't care how it tastes, like one product and, you know, you got to love it or leave it. And, you know, that works for, for 20 years. But then once it was like, hang on, why don't we have different flavors and, and bigger can size and double the size for the same price with flavors. Mm. Um, and then people are like, Hey, this is taste better. And I still get a, a hit and, you know, appeal to a certain consumer as well. So, you know, now Red Bull followed suit once they saw that. And now there's heaps of flavors and most, most energy drinks now have a lot of flavors in the market. Yep. Cool. Um, so you make the, you make the shift of going from online into whole into obviously wholesale, the first couple of conversations. Yeah, we've, we've still, we still do online. So we kind of yeah. have the family channel approach, but we started selling offline as well into, into retail and wholesale. The first couple of sales. Um, so uh, aside from maybe some of the friendly sales that you would have done early days, you might have sold into, into some of the restaurants and that sort of thing, I'm not sure. But um, your first your first meeting with a, with a proper category manager and, and um, you know, in a, you know, in a, you know, IJ or something like that. You go in there. Um, what's your, what's your, how do you do it? Number one. And um, is it, is it, is it, is it daunting? I can't imagine it'd be too daunting for you. Um, and, no, and, then, sure. <laughs> and then, and the th- then the third question is um, what do you, what do you need to prepare before going in there? Because just like you said, with your presentation to the manufacturer, I feel like having the right, information that's not too much information and a um, a really good core message that can cut through quickly would be super important because they would have a few people knocking their door down no doubt 100 and that's really what you're trying to do is stand out from a credibility perspective soon and early and, and set the right impressions because very quickly they'll assume you're just another startup and why would i give you a chance to support nationally you won't deliver your products you might have product issues you might have manufacturing issues you know, this brand might not be here in six months time, you know, it's too much work for not much results. So there's all the reason why not to do it, but they still need to, it's like there's still this box that they need to tick. They still want to believe another brand can join their fridges. They still want to, you know, delight their customers. So um, understanding what role you play for them is really important. I think going in straight away and saying, we're going to sell more than Red Bull. We're going to, you know, we're going to sell two, 2 million units in the first year and we're going to give you 60% margin and we're going to be the best thing you've ever done. I think that's immediately going to be like, all right, maybe maybe a bit too big of an ambition where if you're a bit more realistic to say, hey, we're going to tick your health box. We know you need to build your better for your category. We've got this brand and marketing place. We, we want to give it to you first so you feel like you've been an exclusive launch partner for three months. Um, we really want to get behind it with sampling. We've got these are our marketing plans. We've got these influencers lined up to work with us. 
We've got this online traffic. Here's all these testimonials from people who love it. I've already trialed it in five of your independent sites and we know velocity is roughly six units per week or 10 units per week. And, you know, that at a national scale would be great for you, I believe, from category average. You know, I can give you better than average margin. I can give you better average price point because we're a premium health drink. Um, and, you know, what else do you need for this to be no brainer for you to at least give us the trial? You can always, you know, kick us out in six to 12 months if it doesn't work. But my view is over three years, we can start with one product, then go to three products, and then we can, you know, introduce a new pack size to get a different consumer into the category. And, you know, looking at that, not just from a brand lens, but from a category lens, they start thinking, oh, this person's not just thinking about selfishly winning and getting their product and trying to make millions of dollars. It's going as a category. Very early, I realized if you look at, I don't know, seven doors of a, of a 7-Eleven, for example, and then you just apply like some really easy filters like that are no brainers, not overcomplicated niche things, but like, let's just say for one, it needs to taste good, pretty good. Mm. Number one people reason, repeat purchase flavor, food or beverage. Um, let's just say it needs to be low or no sugar, huge, huge health trend, not asking for anything crazy, just low sugar or no sugar, it would be helpful. And then natural. It's like, I'd like something not artificial, like just give me something that's, um, that's natural. So you go, Tastes good, low sugar, natural. That's it, like not crazy asks. You like eliminate all the water, the whole door's gone because it doesn't taste anything. You eliminate all the cola. It's it's obviously neither of those things, maybe it tastes mm -hmm. good. Uh, all the energy drinks are gone. All the sports is gone. All the milk and dairy is gone. All the like, um, so you end up with like maybe two, two shelves a few years ago. You'd end up with two shelves of seven doors just asking for natural low sugar and taste good. You end up with true differentiation after you, after you do that. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, hang on. Like, do you think they're important to consumers today and even more so in the future? Of course. No one's going to disagree with that. Cool. Currently, of your seven doors, yeah. two shelves actually cater into that. And one's a, you know, flavored sparkling water, no sugar. One's a kombucha and one's a shine, nootropic drink. You know, like I think as a consumer trend, you probably need more friends or someone's not going to go into your store and shop somewhere else. Um, um, I'm going to clip the last three minutes and I'm going to post that separately to this because that's the, that's the, that's the blueprint of how that's see when you, when we play it back, it's not going to be anything, anything that's, that's, that's illogical. It's going to, it's not going to be anything that is out of this world, but that's a really well executed, really well executed um, process of asking questions and giving information. And it's not overbearing and it's the right stuff. So anyone who, you know, anyone who wants to go and do this needs to needs to look at that last three minutes. Yeah. So that that's probably my advice around just how do we how do you approach it from a category lens, from a buyer's perspective, and um, you know, understand enough and, and hopefully shown that you've already proven some of the assumptions. It's not have come to you first, give me a national launch in 7-Eleven. You know, I think they've publicly even told me before, it's like we're not where you test new ideas. Like yeah. Go and get it tested, show it works in five stores, show it work at 50 stores, go get someone else to arrange it first and then we'll, and then we'll talk seriously. Yeah, 7-Eleven's got limited space. Everything needs to execute. Everything needs to sell. Everything needs to be margin. There's no yeah. there's no real room for error. <laughs> and I think that's where a lot of people potentially drop off. It's like, oh, it's, it's not that easy. Like I can't just walk into one meeting and get national ranging in five SKUs and make millions of dollars. It's, it's like, no, you've got to probably go into one store and make sure that works for four weeks and you got to go visit the store manager and talk to them. And then you got to do it in five stores. And 
Uh, one of our advisors early days, um, John from Bundaberg Beverages, um, Ginger Beer, he, he, he told me about this kind of postcode strategy where it's pretty much like pick your highest density population consumer, like consumers where you think they hang out. I know for us, health conscious young professionals could be the city, Bondi, Manly, Mossman, you know, the, the Double Bay, the normal spots you might imagine. And then in that postcode, just target the coolest best five stores. Like that's it. The, the coolest either cafe or grocer or convenience store or supermarket, whatever it is. And just, just get in those five, that's it. Like don't think about anything else, but winning in those five. Uh, and then, you know, do samplings, build relationships with managers, learn insights, figure out where you sit in stores, what point of sale will help you sing, um, sell more. And then the next five in that postcode, it will be easy sell because they'll have seen you in the coolest five. Mm. You know, the second tier guys always look at the first tier going, oh, you're in Maloney's or you're in QE food stores, you're in Harris Farm, whatever it may be. Cool, we'll take you. So social, social proofs, everything, everything. 100%. And yep. it's, it's top down, not bottom up. So you don't start at the, the shitty place that's easy to get into. You start at the hardest place and then you work your way down. And then if you get 10 places in one postcode and you're doing really well, proximity ads with Facebook, samplings in the area, then people start to see you guys, shit, you guys are everywhere. It's like, no, we're spending $10 a day on Facebook ads. Yeah. It looks like we're everywhere. And then, you know, you just move to the next suburb. You just do that suburb by suburb or postcode by postcode. And then you get those proofs of data. You get the proofs of credibility that you can take to retailers. Like, you know, Woolworths Metro are looking at what Harris Farm's doing. Harris Farm's looking, you know, at innovating. So they want stuff first. So figure out where, which retailers play the role in the, in the total category as well. So you know, where's your value buyers? Where's your premium buyers? Where's your new and innovative places and, and pick your channel as well. The other piece of the marketing is, is you know, you obviously um, have done a really good job getting the wholesale banging. You're in six and a half thousand stores. That's, that, that just doesn't happen. The other side you mentioned briefly was around um, a very, you know, a relatively new area last 10 years being, being influencers and, and that type of thing. Um, I think a lot of the social channels have fallen off a little bit. Instagram looks looks to me to still be still be going pretty pretty well for four product businesses. Um, who are the type of influencers that you go for, and um, what are the what are the type of qualities that they need to have? Because I know that there's a lot of people that are in influencing for short term and that type of thing. They might not be the best ambassadors. How did you filter to find the right people? I think, to be fair, I don't think we filtered early days. Um, okay. I think there's anyone with a, a profile and a lot of followers. Um, and, and to be honest, probably like aesthetically looking, it was, yep. we wanted us a drink associated, you know, the way it looks and felt meant we want it in, the, in you know, healthy, good looking people's hands. Um, and I remember we did, we did tests and studies around, you know, we did radio ads and like, you know, a, 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 and in a case study, we saw a website traffic spike and our sales spike and things. And then we went with like influencers and it was like one fifth of the price. And we just got like way more spike, way more yep. sales, you know, all, to the point where it paid for itself back then, where now influencers are way overpriced. You know, they're way too fake. People know the game where when we started, it was still very early days. So we, we you could probably be a bit more scattergun approach of, most of them would do a better job than doing nothing where I think now you could probably hurt your brand more so than if you did it um, back then. So I think for me now, the opportunities are less on, for example, Instagram and more like TikTok, um, LinkedIn is really important. And there you can still get organic viral reach outside of just paying to play where Instagram and Facebook is just very much pay to play. 
yeah, Instagram five years ago when they just decided, all right, we're going to shut shut off all the organic reach. It yeah. was um, it was it was obviously a money making thing, and they're well within their rights to do that. And I think it was a good business move for them, but um, much harder for brands to try and get some well priced well priced um, marketing out of it. Yeah. So today, I'll just say for for new brands starting, what we do more now is just organic, pure, authentic relationships or, or ambassadors, so to speak, where you know they might have a not a big of a massive following, but they're actually within their own circles they do influence people they're yeah. held as respectful knowledgeable you know what in what they're talking about or entertaining so for us it's going our pillars of helping people think feel and do better and then we try and have ambassadors who help people think better we have ambassadors help people feel better and we have ambassadors to help people do better and try and share their content and hopefully now we're a more established brand that we can help them with their exposure or partnerships or value by giving product away or merchandise or just credibility being so it's, it's a bit more of a win-win now where back then it was a lot more transactional so so the relationship with the with the influencer and this uh, this this is the last i'll say on on that is um is more about finding an influencer who's got a community as opposed to a bunch of followers type of thing yeah 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 it's like would would they actually influence someone in, in the real world like yeah um, yeah that's probably a good way to think about it yeah cool 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 um what's next um, obviously, obviously, you can't share everything, but um, you're you're in you know the a lot of the big box retailers, and you've you've been going and doing those deals. Obviously, you need to work on those relationships. But what's um, you know outside? Um, what's next as far as as far as Shine is concerned? You've, you look like it looks like you've you've scaled up wholesale heavily. You've um, I don't know I don't know what what the scale of your online is. Is there uh, is there another is there another vertical that you can you can get into another uh, look, distribution there, model? There's always export and that's always an opportunity globally and, and it's huge. It's bigger than Australia at scale, et cetera. But, you know, for me, if you can't win in your backyard, like running over there might just because you're avoiding mm. how hard it is to really, really win in your backyard. And, you know, I look even down here in Manly and I look out the window and if I'm like, I'm not seeing like 10 people walking around with a shine can in their hand. Like, have I, have I really done that <laughs> job? And, you know, I, I, for me, I used to look at distribution I have this thing called a flywheel where it's like, what's the really true economic drivers of the business where distribution drives volume, which drives efficiency, which drives profits, which drives marketing, which drives awareness, which drives velocity, which drives penetration. Take that back to retail and get more distribution. And it continues. And distribution was, for me, us is always where you got to start because you've got to start getting the efficiencies through the system. Sales. Anyone who's starting a product business or a software product business or a, to be honest, any business, Sales is everything. So people people think that creating a product is the hard part. The selling anything is the hard part of it, yeah, of, every, yeah. of, every, of everything. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> agreed. So we start a distribution and really that's, you know, selling uh, and building relationships and influencing. So when I look at distribution, I, I look at, we can get volume, which is the output in, now I'm, I'm thinking it's three ways. I used to always think it was two ways. Way number one is get more stores or outlets, as I say. And then way number two is get more SKUs in those stores. So you could have the same 700 7-Elevens with one store versus with, with, with one drink or with two drinks. And you could technically double your distribution or your total volume if you just got two flavors into the same 700 stores versus getting one flavor in 1,400 stores, you know, 7-Eleven and a Ampol. So that was always like the equation I was playing up with was, do we want more SKUs or more outlets in those stores? Or more outlets, more SKUs in those outlets. But I'm, I'm, I've learned 
in the last six months, let's say, um, around, there's, I think there's a third factor, which is um, facings or shelf space. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like how many facings of those SKUs are in those stores? And it's another, it's a whole other exponential market and an opportunity where we did some analysis. And, you know, if you think about a store like a 7-Eleven or a, a, an Ampole, for example, petrol station, convenience store, and they've got, you know, a whole door for Red Bull and a whole door for V and, a, you know, half a door for Monster and Mother and stuff, you know, and then we've got like one face in for our, each of our products. And maybe we get, you know, in, in the energy section, we've maybe got like three places on the shelf of two whole doors. And then we, we did this comparison around how much sales are we contributing to the total category compared to how much space are we actually given? Yep. And we found we massively over-deliver on sales to space where some of the very large, big energy brands, and I won't name them, are undelivering on the space they're given. So over time, because of where consumer trends are going and that's just how it's always been, they're starting to not deliver to the space that they get given. So we, we did some numbers and calculation where on average, we would sell you know, 32% in some accounts, maybe 45% in other accounts, more than the lead-in energy drink brands on a shelf space analysis perspective. So as a buyer sitting there, it's like, what an opportunity. Like I could probably still sell the same of the traditional energy drinks, but if I open up more on, for example, Shine, I'm going to get more margin, more dollars per sale, and I'm going to tick the consumer trend box of where this is going. And they can probably make another three, four, $5 million incremental sales in their fridge from the same number of basins just optimized for, for example, Shine, giving more and, and removing some of the more traditional energy. So, so, so it's, so it's always about educating the store that there are that or educate or educating the buyer that there are, um, there are kind of a property real estate business as opposed to a, as opposed to a retail business. Yeah. It's, it's, it's resource allocation and, and ah. optimization really. And, you know, the supply chain efficiencies of why you need certain facings as well and catering peak times and things. So they, they're very smart. Trust me, they've got more numbers than I do. But we, we shared some of those insights with, with our retailers and it was like, wow, I didn't even know that because they're not thinking potentially around how much on a per facing basis is, is each article delivering. They're looking at their total, you know, how many sales do I get from this person? And how many sales and margin do I get from this person? Um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was a really interesting case study. And, and, and thankfully a lot of the retailers were like, awesome. Like I'm going to, I'm going to open up on shine more. So for me, you ask me what's next, you know, Red Bull, for example, sell 25 times more than us, I think in, in 7-Eleven alone. No, they sell 18 times more than us in 7-Eleven alone, but they've got 25 times more of the space. Okay. So for me, it's like we can still in the same 700 stores sell 18 times more than what we're selling now. Okay. And that's way more exciting to me than, you know, let's go chase one more market internationally. I think, yeah. we're still, you know, 10 times at least more growth here in Australia on a face-ins, on a visibility, on, on that brand awareness perspective. We really haven't spent much money on on advertising. We've got some awesome campaigns coming soon, but it much stickier revenue. It, it's much stickier revenue as well to get deeper into to get deeper into your current customers. Much stickier revenue than than export would be, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and I'd, I'd love that challenge of and and the opportunity, and the curiosity, and that adventure of international growth. And there's there's we're, we're in New Zealand, like New Zealand's doing really well for us. Uh, there's some other opportunities and markets that are opened up for us at the moment. We're just doing little sandbox tests, but for me, as a core strategic focus, it's how do we how do we win in our own backyard? And 
how do we paint Australia yellow, so to speak? And- yeah, awesome. Mate, that was uh, that was awesome. Uh, thank you so much. Um, we'll probably wind it up there, but that was that was that was a really good hour. Thank you so much. No problem, man. Appreciate it. Awesome. Cheers. Thanks for tuning into Product Hub. This episode was brought to you by Pencil Pay, the world's fastest credit application and payment software for product sellers and their wholesale customers. If you sell products on payment terms, check us out at www.pencilpay.com and start getting paid on time today. I'm your host, Tim Dimitriou. See you next time.